Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Dr. Cameron Staley. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be back with you again. And back is the right word, listeners. Um, Dr. Staley was on episode 345, and he is somebody that has a lot of skills and insights to help those working to solve porn use. He especially will talk about the ACT approach to solving porn use. So listen to this episode. If you haven't listened to anything he shared before, then you could circle back if you want to and listen to episode 345. Um, but most importantly, we'll link um, during, at the end of this podcast in the show notes to some of the resources he will talk about, including a new um, app that he has introduced that will be helpful for you. This podcast, listeners, I think will be helpful for you if you're working to end porn use. Um, some of you know I've been a YSA bishop. That started in 2013, and the, the stake president set me apart, left the office, and there was a line of YSAs working, waiting to meet with me. I knew none of them because I wasn't serving in my footprint, and that first good man walked in and talked about porn. And I wish I had known what I know now and the things that you're teaching. I would have helped. Um, better. And so that's been a focus of this podcast on and off. And um, listeners, as you may know, I wrote a new book. It's at Desert Book. It's called Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. It has 10 chapters. Each chapter is kind of a standalone chapter, but chapter four is ending pornography use. And Dr. Cameron Staley work is referenced in that chapter. A sister to chapter that is chapter five, Hope-Filled Repentance. And um, I encourage it, you know everybody to read this book, especially if you're a parent or a leader walking this road. It will give you better tools, um, hope-filled tools, and better perspective to put things behind you. Is that okay for an introduction? Love it. If listeners aren't familiar with you, will you just tell us your station in life? I know you're a professor. You could tell us your academic background, where you, um, where you teach. And just maybe your family, I know you're married and whatever you want to do just to introduce, I know you're an active Latter-day Saint, introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist and I received my PhD at Idaho State University. And then I did my residency down at BYU's Counseling Center in Provo for a year. And I've worked in university counseling in the counseling centers for the last 10 years. So I've worked at Idaho State for most of that time. I've worked down in Logan at Utah State and in that year at BYU. And so I do mostly mental health counseling for the university students. And then I've also taught classes each semester for the psychology department. And then more recently, just due to people reaching out, wanting to work with me, I started a private practice. So I'm licensed in Utah and Idaho, and I've been working with people in Utah and Idaho with general mental health concerns, but definitely around sexual health and religious concerns. And yeah, I've been married for 16 years this week. We get to celebrate our anniversary. That's great. So I'm looking forward to that. And I've got four kiddos and I've been serving the Elders Corn Presidency for a really long time. It seems like it seems like I keep wherever I move, I keep circling back <laughs> into Elders Corn. So that's been my home for a long time. Um, thanks for introducing yourselves and um, appreciate all the work you're doing in so many circles and appreciate your professional background. 
I'm drawn to people with clinical and education and academic experience in these spaces and serve a research framework to help us understand and connect the dots to be able to help others. But listeners, we kind of have three parts of this podcast, just an introduction. Part one is why do some struggle with pornography? And part two is how acceptance and commitment therapy, that's the ACT um, approach, help re- reduce pornography viewing. And then we'll talk about the resources um, that Dr. Staley has put together, including this app. So with that, I'll just let you start with part one. Why do some struggle with pornography? This is a big question, and I hope that this will provide a lot of answers and new understanding for those that have struggled for a long time. And what I've seen is a lot of folks that are struggling, it's like, I I don't want to be viewing pornography. Why does this keep occurring? And the narrative that's been around here for decades is, well, it's because it's an addiction. And and that language doesn't really give us a path forward. Um, If anything, sometimes it can be more disorienting or more scary. And there's a lot of myths associated with that and a lot of concerns. And sometimes just that language and understanding can make us more confused and, and struggle with this even longer. So I'd say the top four reasons that we have found why folks struggle with pornography, even when they don't want to, has really been more clear in the last 10 years. So this is what we found in research is one of the first reasons why people struggle with porn is due to control. That there's so many things in this world and our life that we can control. We want to control our thoughts and our feelings and our urges. And often the more we try to control those things that happen internal, the less control we have. So we've learned that if we try to suppress a thought or an emotion or an urge, it actually tends to amplify those. Or if we try to avoid this comfort or these sexual thoughts, they keep coming back more and more. Or if we're distracting ourselves or trying to escape anything that's uncomfortable, these things keep returning even stronger. And so that's really the, the first reason is the reason why we're viewing really matters. So if we're viewing to avoid this comfort or to suppress it or get rid of it, that tends to lead to more problematic behaviors like compulsive pornography viewing. And I would say more recently in my professional life, I've been learning more about marijuana. There's a lot of folks that struggle with that and lots of debates around that. And I've been meeting with uh, a pharmacist and a physician independently just to learn more about the impacts of marijuana. And and they shared something that was really quite striking. And because I was interested in like, you know, how does marijuana impact neurological development? What is the addiction potential? And, And they said, you know, The actual substance, be it marijuana or alcohol or pornography or gaming, has less relevance than the reason why you're engaging in those behaviors. So if you're engaging in those coping strategies to avoid discomfort, that reason gets reinforced over time. But the coping strategy being porn or marijuana or alcohol or gaming or social media is fairly interchangeable. Those are just the things that we're going to to avoid the discomfort. But the avoidance actually is the problem. That is what's predicting the the problematic use. So listeners, that's sort of a paradigm shift for me from, you know, and I think you talked in an earlier podcast about, well, if I had given the advice to somebody control your thoughts or don't think about it, 
you said something. Can you recreate that line? You said you can't not think something or. <laughs> yeah. Our, our mind can only do. It can only think. It can't not think. And that double negative is hard to say. But if we're spending most of our day in life trying not to think about pornography, we're going to be thinking about pornography all the time. Our mind likes to be busy and it likes to work, but it can only do. It, it can't not do. And so if you're focused on trying not to have these thoughts, you're having those thoughts all the time. And so I think you're normalizing thoughts and just it's the reality of mortality and the way we're wired. And we shouldn't feel shame or self-loathing for thoughts. but And that helps us have more control over our actions. Is that okay, what I just said? And do you want to connect any more dots there for our listeners? That's it. That's actually the key thing that unlocks agency is the more we're open and able to experience thoughts and emotions and urges as they are, we're actually able to choose our behaviors and our agency becomes online. But if often we're kind of taught that, well, we got to stop urges, we got to stop thoughts, we got to stop these emotions, and then we can choose our actions. That's the trap. And so the, the second area we found of why folks struggle with compulsive sexual behaviors is they're often lower on levels of mindfulness. So they are less aware of thoughts and emotions and urges. But also when those emotions and urges come up, they're more critical of them, more judgmental. They want to get those away. And that's another thing that contributes to this struggle is we want those things to go away. And the more we focus on that, the, the less we're actually able to choose our actions and our life and the less agency that we have. Talk more about that low mindfulness if you want to. Yeah, that is maybe the biggest predictor for unwanted pornography viewing. And the thing that I've seen that jumps out the most when I'm working with somebody is folks that are a little bit lower on mindfulness are often less aware of what's preceding an urge to view pornography. And I'd say typically it's an emotion. It's we're feeling stressed, we're feeling anxious, we're feeling lonely, we might be bored, we might be feeling sad. And if we're not aware of that, those emotions, the purpose of them is to put us in motion. That's the root of emotion, is to put us in motion. And so we tend to engage in behaviors, and we don't really know why, because we're not that aware of that emotion. And so emotions are just trying to communicate to us, but sometimes they feel uncomfortable. So we just kind of want to skip over those. But as we do that, we, we do tend to engage in more scrolling on social media or overeating or looking at sexual images. And we're not even aware that it's because we were stressed or because we were lonely. So one of the key things we do is we got to increase awareness of emotions. And the second part of that mindfulness piece is we have to have more acceptance of them. We might not like some of the emotions or thoughts that we're experiencing, but they really are just information. They're just trying to communicate things to us about our surroundings. And the more we're willing to have those, the less struggle we have and the more we can choose our actions. Um, I like that. And listeners, I I talk a lot about the bottom of the iceberg concept because a therapist taught me this is often what's going on at the iceberg in our own lives or in others that's a sin or something we're trying to stop, like pornography viewing. Um, You can sort of white knuckle it. Or you can do what Dr. Staley's helping us understand is get to the bottom of the iceberg and have better insights, principles, skills, 
um, to be able to then solve the stuff at the top of the iceberg. And um, part of the thing you're doing, it's so natural for you, but when I hear you talk, it reminds me is the language you use um, around pornography use. I think both of us are saying this is a sin and something that is against church teachings, and we both invite people not to view pornography. I think that's pretty clear with both of us. But we're also using language that de-shames it um, without sort of saying it's okay to do, like um, a coping mechanism. You put it into the category of all these other things that for some, I may, I've been, uh, I ran for seven years straight without missing a day. It was kind of a weird phase in my life. Wow. And it's a, I've never actually mentioned that on a podcast. And <laughs> I realized that was a coping mechanism. It was sort of an irrational thing. It was in my, but it probably was a coping mechanism. But it, in that case, it wasn't sin related. It was just not very balanced or very realistic or very practical. And, and eating isn't a sin, but can be just like unwanted pornography use, a coping mechanism to sort of escape the realities of our lives and things. So I think if I look at it, that framework, uh, it's just de shames it and in my opinion, makes it more likely someone could put this behind them. And yeah. if they're not using the addiction label or I'm a terrible person in the eyes of our heavenly father, and this is the most disgusting thing. And I'm the only one in my ward working through this. You've heard personal stories. I'm sure of people that have opened up to you and said, this is who I feel I am. Yeah. So it's really helpful what you're helping us. And um, listeners, we're still on the section one of why do some struggle with pornography? And we're in these four reasons. The second one is low mindfulness. Do you want to go to the third one? Yeah. And you really gave the intro for it. And it's emotional concerns or typically that iceberg and viewing pornography. It really is a symptom. And we often just focus on that symptom, just like a cough where it's like, oh, that cough is so annoying and we, we got to get rid of that, but we, we don't go to a doctor and the doctor says, okay, you got a cough. I want you to really focus this week on not coughing. And as soon as you're not coughing anymore, then you're healthy and you're good to go. It's like, no, like when we're sick, we might need chicken noodle soup. We might need antibiotics. We might need rest. And as we take care of the underlying iceberg, then the cough kind of goes away. And pornography is very much the same thing. And so you named shame, and this is research that just came out within the last few months, which I might've known this at some level, but the way they framed this was really incredible. And what they found is folks that struggle with pornography, that when they're feeling shame, that actually leads to an increase in sexual desire within a couple of hours. I thought, holy cow, that is significant. And they found that Folks that did not struggle with pornography, shame did not predict sexual desire at all. Actually, self-esteem did. That if you're feeling good about yourself, you have desires to connect with your partner. And that's a pretty ideal, meaningful pathway. But if you've struggled with porn for many, many years, and you feel this overwhelming sense of shame, your body has found a way to cope with that. And that is engaging in sexual behavior which is the very thing that reinforces that shame. But that, that pattern is really key. And so if we're talking about pornography in a way that actually ramps up shame, that's actually going to contribute to this ongoing cycle. And that really is just for folks that struggle with compulsive sexual behaviors. It, 
feelings of shame predict increased sexual desire within a couple of hours. And that's research that just rolled off the presses in the last few months. And that's really key to have that evidence that shame is a really driving factor. And I like how you talked about that earlier is sometimes people are so focused on, we, we got to condemn this, we got to condemn this. Um, and it's like, not condemning something is not the same thing as condoning something. But I think our minds like to do either or. It's like, if you're not talking about this in really loud, harsh words, then you must be condoning it and approving it. It's like, nope, that's, that's a false kind of dichotomy there. We're more interested in helping reduce those things that are maintaining this problem. And that really big one is shame. Talk about, are you talking about shame related to pornography use or does shame come into people's lives from other sources, Dr. Staley, and then sort of leads to pornography use? Yeah. So shame is an emotion even bigger than outside of pornography viewing. And so a lot of your work has been around sexuality in general, sexual orientation, gender identity. A lot of folks experience a lot of shame around that um, and may engage in compulsive behaviors to cope with those feelings as well. And so even the emotion of shame has a function. So I always thought shame was always the enemy all of the time, but shame actually is trying to help us, which seems kind of strange. Um, so when we're faced with a, a danger or something that's threatening, our primary defense is to fight against it or run away from it. But if we're not able to do that, we tend to withdraw and collapse. And that's what shame is. So often, if we grow up in a culture where your sexuality is not okay, or your gender identity is not okay, or having urges are not okay, you can't really fight against your own sexuality and you can't run away from it. So the only solution is to kind of blame yourself and withdraw and collapse. And so shame is trying to protect us, but if we stay there, it does keep us stuck. Um, but it does give us a sense of control that, oh, it must be me that's the problem. If I fix me, I can move forward in my life. But we are not the problem. It's often the messages and how we've talked about sexuality and gender identity and sexual urges that are the problem. And we've just tried to cope with it by blaming ourselves. So shame hopefully can be a temporary station and that we may need even less of that the more you keep writing your books and improving the culture to help people not need to blame themselves and hold on to shame just to cope with being a sexual being. Um, thank you for that segment. I want to go back to an earlier segment. You sort of talked about shame predicts, I think you said sexual behavior, or sexual urges. And I'm thinking of married people that sort of have a pathway to, I don't know what the right words, to engage in sexual behavior, I guess would be <laughs> or a single person that doesn't really have a pathway to engage in sexual behavior. And I don't know if that makes a married person more likely to view pornography, a single person view pornography. And so any thoughts on that? Or even, I don't know if engaging in sexual behavior out of shame is really the ideal thing either. Right. Even in a married situation. So you may be working with couples that are trying to engage in sexual behavior, not out of shame or, but out of a desire to connect. I, you know, I'm not even sure the right vocabulary, but just those thoughts come into my mind. If you want to address yeah. any of that. Yeah, I think that's right on. So any behavior can have multiple functions and the intention behind that behavior really matters. So if you are married and feeling terrible about yourself, it's like, well, I'll have sex with my partner to, to not feel terrible. 
that may not be as a connecting intimate experience. Um, that might be more of a coping strategy, just like going to the pantry and, and eating some Oreos. It, it might help you feel better temporarily, but ideally that, that sexual experience with your partner is connecting and intimacy building. But if we're doing it because I feel really bad, I don't want to feel bad right now. Um, yeah, I, I think that's not the primary purpose of sexuality in that relationship. So I think the intention really, really matters. So an alternative might be if you're feeling really shame, shameful about whatever it is in your life is to talk about it. That is the antidote to shame. It's vulnerability. It's opening up. It's having conversations. It's having connection. It's getting closer. Shame just cannot survive when we shine a light on it. And when we talk about it and get closer, it, it goes away. And then with that kind of connection intimacy, it's like, yeah, sexual behavior in that context would be even more meaningful and connecting. But a lot of people don't want to experience that discomfort of vulnerability and just want to fast forward that and, and just engage in sexual behavior with your partner. And I would say, let's first explore the intention. If this is really to connect and be close to your partner, that's really, really healthy. If it's because I don't want to feel discomfort, that maybe isn't the best reason to connect with your partner in that moment and maybe spending more time having conversation. Wow. That was great. I knew you could give a good answer to my <laughs> kind of vague question. That was terrific. And I love some of the vocabularies in there about um, vulnerabilities, the de you know, take shame out. And I, and vulnerability brings vulnerability and an effect connecting and authentic um, advice for unmarried people that sort of, you know, have sexual urges and are trying not to act out and they turn to pornography, just how to, and they want to live the law of chastity and stay consistent with church standards and any advice to that group? Yeah. So some of it's similar and then some of it's a little unique because in a marriage, it's like, oh, you have an opportunity to engage in sexual behavior consistent with church teachings. That's a little different um, when you're single. And so I would say that desire for connection is still there. And those feelings of shame still come up. And so still engaging in conversation, embracing that vulnerability, even though that's unpleasant, and having those conversations is really key. And then what I would add, if, if you're not in that marriage relationship, this is a time to learn about yourself and to learn about sexuality. So if you're having urges and it's like, oh, these are bad, I should get rid of these. I would encourage the opposite to say, oh, this might be a period of learning um, where, what are good resources that I could learn more about sexuality? How could I have more conversations? Because I found that even just having conversations around sexuality are quite connecting and quite meaningful. And sometimes we just have that urge and we just kind of hold it in and don't know what to do with it. But we can have conversations with healthy, safe people and learn about our sexuality. That's really key. And then with anything that's really powerful and important, there is a, there's a developmental learning process. So there might be times that you engage in sexual behavior with yourself. You might masturbate. Um, those things may occur. That's kind of part of that learning process. And for me, that's all repentance is. It's, it's part of that learning process and realigning your will um, those aren't things that are destroying the plan. That is the plan. Like, so allowing yourself to learn and understand those. And that just is part of people's kind of preparation for that marriage relationship. So it doesn't have to be a period of, 
I can't think or learn about sexuality before I'm married. I'd say empower yourself to learn from good resources, have those conversations. And if you engage in sexual behavior, learn from that. And repentance is a wonderful gift. It's like, I can get back on track. It, it doesn't f- prevent us from the atonement. Those mistakes and sins are what draws to Christ. Um, so those things are okay. That's part of learning. That's a terrific segment. I've said that a few times this podcast. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, women who are culturally taught not to have urges and men who are kind of out of control. And so it's the women that are, and I'm, my women friends have helped me understand how that narrative is painful. And, yep. and perhaps we haven't allowed women to have urges that they're sexual beings too. And here's two men talking about women. But yep. I think culture, and I'm sure that's, you have female clients. And I, so I love why you've normalized urges. And I think you would probably say for men and women. Yep. And to have these conversations, both sexes are sexual beings and wired for sexual connection. And that's part of the plan and normal and urges are normal. And I love talking about it in appropriate ways with other people would probably be a healthy thing. I don't think that caused you to act out more in an appropriate way, but I think that de-shames it back to your, some of your thoughts and just normalizes that I'm single and I have sexual urges and I'm looking forward to marriage if that's something that's possible in my life. and. Any more thoughts on that? I think you're right on. And that made me think of the research they're doing at BYU right now about parents talking to their children around sexuality. And the fear is, oh, if I talk to my kids, they're (laughs) going to engage in even more sexual behavior. And the opposite is true. Um, But the more you talk about it, the more education, the safer you are, the more connection, there's less sexual behaviors occurring. And so those conversations are always productive. and, And I'm glad that you're bringing in gender because there's often this i don't even know how to quite say this but it's like men are having urges and engaging behavior and that's problematic and then if if women aren't that's the goal that's what we're looking for like the absence of these thoughts and urges and i would say over engaging and trying to not have any urges are equally problematic that finding that balance in the middle where you know, sexuality is part of our experience. It shouldn't be all of it, and it shouldn't be none of it. Um, but moderation, uh, we've learned, is healthy, having balance. But sometimes we say, you know, if, if you don't ever have sexual thoughts or feelings or urges, that's somehow more righteous or better. But that's starvation. That's, that's not health either. But also overindulging and overeating is not healthy either. And so we are looking for that healthy balance. And sometimes genders get different messages around that. That's a great segment. And listeners, um, Dr. Staley brought up masturbation. I wrote about that just because I felt like writing about it. So it's in chapter four of the book, part of pornography use. And that's an area where since we're not talking about it very much, um, exactly, you know, what kind of sin is, how serious it is, what does it really mean? Or And there's just not a lot of official written material about masturbation. There's so much misinformation in the why in the lives of YSAs that I just was kind of stunned when I started to hear their different feelings about that. And I just included that in the book. And you can read about that in chapter four. We won't spend time going through that in this podcast, but I just felt there's needless shame and needless self-loathing. And I'm glad you brought that up. Um, let's keep going. Do you want to talk more about emotional concerns or go to part four of or number four of part one? Moral disapproval. 
Yeah, I can touch a little bit more on that. And maybe just one more thing about masturbation is good, please. There can be so much shame there where often folks view more sexual images in an effort to kind of ramp up sexual arousal enough to overpower that shame to then masturbate. And so those can be linked in that way because masturbation feels so shameful that actually leads to more pornography viewing. And those can be separate experiences. And and what I've learned working with a lot of people that for some people, their learning process or sexual development may include self-exploration and may include masturbation. For others, it really isn't. It's not part of kind of what they need for sexual development. Um, But for some, that's kind of part of that journey. But that shame around that really does contribute to more porn viewing. So I think it is helpful to talk about those. And we talk a lot more about porn than masturbation. Yeah. And I think that is important because we're like, well, well, let's talk about porn. But because we're not talking about masturbation, that problem continues to be a pretty large one. And when I'm having conversations with folks or on these online LDS Facebook forums, questions about masturbation seem to be more frequent than even pornography because it does feel very ambiguous and there's not a lot of direction. And a lot of the things the church has said about it, they've kind of stepped away from or removed those. Yeah. So now it's left up to us to figure this out. And we don't like that. We're like, oh, just tell us what to do. But in this life, it's like, no, actually, you do have to exercise your agency. And you do have to dust off that old Leahona and, and listen to the spirit and tune in and develop that relationship with God to figure out what's going to be healthy for you. And we want to skip that and say, just tell me what's okay and not is okay. But I think this is bigger than that. This is more important than that. And we need to figure this out in a personal way with, with our Heavenly Father. I like that. And, you know, I, I'm agreeing. I really agree with you. We used to talk about this. We don't. And so it's left. And so I don't want to spend too much time on this because you got another half a podcast to go. But I just, I had one young man and I talked about in the book without a name that it took about three interviews of just, I could tell he wanted to talk about something and he yep. just couldn't get it out. And I was kind of preparing myself for an Alma, the younger type confession. And this is what he was working through. And yep. I, my, I just drove home from the Bishop's office that night and cried for him yep. that he was felt that this is who he was. And it was the, he was very brave to talk about it, but I recognize our lack of direct teaching about this added to his load. Yep. And was more burdensome and shameful and just kept him in the cycle you're talking about. And so uh, I also got to the point where, um, since it's not listed as a major sin in the handbook, I conclude it's a minor sin. And I told the YSAs and Elders Quorum Release Site, if you want to talk to me about this, and it could be helpful, I'm glad to talk to you about it. But if you want to work this out directly with God, I'm fine with that too. And I'm not going to proactively ask you about this as part of a worthiness interview or a temporary question. It's not in there. And it it sort of just, it, it, it was just clear expectations of how I felt about that. I, you know, I would say it's a minor sin. It's not listed as a major sin. It's not in the handbook anywhere. So that's the way I framed it up. And, and also in the book have some ideas for bishops of home wards because they might be talking to this about, ironic priesthood men and young women's. And I think they need to, this is a whole nother podcast, perhaps talk to the parents um, about what they're going to ask their kids and get the parents. Okay. And that may be a family by family um, 
conversation if they're going to proactively talk about uh, masturbation or pornography um, with the the young people in their wards. So that's a whole nother subject. And I think you probably have some really good insights on that. But anyway, we're kind of working on, you know, appropriate bishops interviews as the church yeah. and the best way to handle that. And we've, so I don't know if you want to add anything to that or just go right on to the next segment. No, I love that. And, and that's been my experience. I often chat with my bishop and state president and they'll say, Hey Cameron, well, I just want to wrap my mind around pornography and masturbation. And, and they're actually coming to, to consult a little bit with me about, I hope we're handling this. Okay. Yeah. And my bishop and state president are absolutely wonderful. And, and they have a similar outlook that, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to talk about masturbation and pornography. If individuals bring it up, um, but we're not digging for it. We're not investigating for it. We're happy to help people navigate that and support them. Um, but as people are getting ready to go on missions, they're not, they're not asking about porn and masturbation. They'll chat about it if they would like, but they haven't found that to be part of that interview process that's helpful and productive. But they're open to have those conversations. And yeah, my bishop, I really enjoy my bishop. He's like, I just, we all sin. So why would I want to withhold the sacrament from someone who just sins differently than me or not allow them to worship in the temple because they sin differently than me? If they're striving to learn and do the right thing, like taking the sacrament, attending the temple typically helps them in that process. And I've really appreciated that outlook, but we often put sexuality in different category where it's like, well, that sin's different. So there's, there's gotta be some consequences and, and sometimes there needs to be, but sometimes it's a learning process and we're engaging in those behaviors due to emotional concerns, which I'll finally get to the rest of those. So some of those are. Well, let me um, just jump. More, oh, I'm gonna, go ahead. I'm going to be um, podcast host for just a second because I love <laughs> what you just said. We're kind of, um, chapter five of this book, listeners, is hope-filled repentance. And you mentioned to think, it's interesting how we're coming to different conclusions you from kind of an academic and clinical perspective and me from a pastoral perspective, but it's the same gospel of Jesus Christ. That shouldn't surprise us. But I listeners, I came to the feeling with um, withholding the sacrament is that um, to me, the taking the sacrament is more about looking forward at, versus a penalty for the past. So if a YSA um, and I would counsel with them, I love elder Ballard's, idea of counseling together. So often instead of being the final authority, which I was, and I would, but often I'd counsel with a YSA and say, would it be helpful to not take the sacrament for a period of time? Yep. Um, and some would say, yeah, it really would. And so we'd agree to do that. But some said, no, it wouldn't. Um, I would actually like to take the sacrament because to me, it's, it's looking forward and not a penalty for the past. And I felt like I'd never been a homeward bishop, but I felt the shame of a of a young man or a young woman not taking the sacrament on the road is, the, is really difficult. Um, there's been some people close to me in my life that have sat in the foyer and not gone to church or come in late just to avoid the shame of that experience. So I think for a homeward bishop um, not taking the sacrament, we let non, I pointed out in the book, we let non-members take the sacrament. We let people that are not eight take the sacrament. So I think taking the sacrament should pr- it's a pretty low bar. Um, and I think we need, to, I think we really would need to involve somebody and have them sort of self to self counsel with us and say, yeah, it would actually help me not to take the sacrament. Now participating in an ordinance like blessing a sacrament or um, being a temple worker or, you know, the temple is a higher bar than taking the sacrament for me. So 
we would counsel together also on that. But I think particularly um, just receiving the sacrament is something that I agree very much with you. So just some more thoughts on that. And you read chapter five of this book if you want to go deeper on that about hope-filled repentance. All right, back to you, Cameron. And I agree with you. I, some of the most excruciating, painful conversations I've had with people is when they talk about, I didn't want to show up in the chapel that day and experience having that tray go by and I couldn't participate. And so they either don't go or they show up late or they're not able to engage and feel the spirit. And it's like that, that is often opposite of what we're trying to accomplish is we're trying to facilitate connection and improve the spirit and help people feel included and reduce that shame. But we know that shame is going to predict this problem. So the more we do things that grow that shame, the, the more the problem becomes. Um, so yeah, that's a big one. Those other ones in that emotional area that we found in research is folks that are more interpersonally sensitive tend to struggle more with compulsive sexual behaviors or more prone to loneliness or have some insecure attachment styles or more likely to um, judge themselves pretty harshly. They're not forgiving themselves or alexithymia is just a fancy word for have difficulty naming emotions or expressing those that those are the iceberg you mentioned earlier. And so I often view that unwanted pornography is much more of an emotional concern than a sexual problem. And there's a, a lot of different emotional concerns that contribute to that. And so if we just focus on that symptom and, and view it more as, oh, this is a worthiness issue. We're missing this whole range of sexual or not sexual emotional concerns that might be going on. And if we could adequately address those that need to soothe ourselves by viewing sexual images kind of goes away. That's great. Keep talking. So that fourth area, we finally got through all four. It's just hard to stop these conversations with you. Um, but that fourth area that we found that, that contributes to compulsive sexual behaviors is the, the religious piece. So we found that those are who are religious are more likely to perceive themselves to be addicted to pornography than less religious individuals, even though religious folks tend to view at much lower rates. And so it's that perception of addiction is really different than actually engaging in high level of behavior consistent with addiction. So that's a key thing. It's that perception. And often why that happens more often with religious individuals is it's the culture. So in more Christian evangelical circles, when we talk about sexuality, it's almost synonymous with addiction. That's the language. That's the narrative. That's kind of all we have. And so we know that therapists who are religious are more likely to perceive pornography addiction in their clients, even though they may not be kind of at that level. And the reason why that has evolved in religious circles is if you're engaging in behavior that's inconsistent with your religious teachings, we're trying to find an explanation for this. Or it's like, you know, these are good ward members. We've counseled them not to view porn. Why are they viewing porn? They're not choosing this. It's got to be a disease. It's got to be an addiction. And so it does alleviate a sense of responsibility, but that is counter to agency. And so I actually want people to take more responsibility that you can't say an addiction led to you viewing or a disease led to you viewing that you chose to view sexual images. You exercise that behavior and chose that. And the more we take responsibility for actions, 
the more control we have. But if we relinquish that and say, well, it's because I'm an addict, I'm not able to choose these actions. We're kind of handing off our agency. Um, and that's not what I signed up for or any of us. And we want to practice that and grow that. And things like addiction kind of is an illusion that we don't have that choice anymore. And so we do want to let go of those things and instead focus on what are these factors that contribute to our struggles with these urges and these behaviors and let go of that identity that I'm an addict. I would prefer people hold on that identity that I'm a, a child of God. Um, I've got a divine origin. Um, I am not an addict. I'm, I'm Cameron or I'm a disciple or I'm ch a child of loving heavenly parents. Those are really meaningful um, identities to hold on to. And I cherish those. But too often that addiction becomes part of people's identity and that further facilitates that shame and leads to that cycle once again. That's great. Any more on that? Do you want to talk about scrupulosity as part of that or any other um, parts of this? Yeah. And that's, that's been a really painful one too. So scrupulosity is basically religious OCD where any unwanted thoughts or unkind thoughts or sexual urges tend to carry a lot more weight and they get amplified. And so a lot of us have thoughts that are like, oh, I didn't like that person. And you kind of let it go. Um, or you felt angry or upset and you kind of let it go. Um, or you have a sexual urge or a thought. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's just kind of part of what it's like. I noticed somebody who's attractive. I, that's just kind of what happens. With scrupulosity, all of those thoughts and feelings and urges get amplified. And they're deeply distressing because they feel like major sins. And they're really, really upsetting. And they facilitate that shame. And so a lot of folks with scrupulosity struggle with sexual behaviors because that's one way to help cope with that level of distress and ambiguity about where you are in your relationship with God. And they've done some research. This is in the last year or two, where if you look at, you know, how much does stress predict pornography or um, depression or these lack of awareness of emotions and scrupulosity, they found that scrupulosity might predict porn more than all of those. So this is a, a big part of it is people are kind of putting sexual thoughts and feelings under a microscope and they look huge. And so this leads to like compulsive prayer and compulsive repenting and compulsive confession because these things feel so terrible and wrong and people can feel really hopeless and it can feel like there's no way out. And, and I've seen folks struggle with self-harm and suicide. And it's often the scrupulosity piece that we tend to not be that aware of in religious circles where it's like, oh yeah, these things are bad. You should be upset by those. But folks that are on the scrupulosity end of the continuum are overly distressed way beyond what would be ideal for, oh, I made a mistake. I should feel guilty. Let's change that. Um, it's, it's way beyond that. And that scrupulosity can contribute to porn struggles. And that is often missed. That's a great segment too. And listeners, believe it or not, we have a chapter on scrupulosity. <laughs> like oh, wonderful. Chapter seven. I, you know, we have a chapter six about understanding mental illness and suicide, but then I wanted to bring scrupulosity into its own chapter because it's such a unique, um, as you well know. And I love the way you helped us understand 
scrupulosity sort of attacks the things that are most important to us. And my experience, some of the most deeply spiritual, good, honest, righteous um, women and men um, do have scrupulosity, and then it attacks the thing they value the most. And then I love the way you then connected the dots that then that leads to behaviors to sort of deal with the shame and the self-loathing. And I've recognized culturally listeners, sometimes we say phrases that I wrote down three of them that I've heard over the years, perfect obedience, uh, being sin resistant and exact obedience. And for for some Latter-day Saints, those are helpful because it helps them do better. But for some, it just feels like this bar that's impossible to reach. And I don't think for most, it's really practical to reach. And I think sort of having those goals may just feel so far out of reach um, that it just actually um, creates just the opposite because of the shame it breeds. So I love obedience, listeners. I'm pro-obedience, let me be clear. But I think sometimes creating those sort of expectations of those bars, especially for somebody with scrupulosity. Um, so I don't know if you've got any thoughts on those or just want to keep moving along. No, I'm with you. Like those phrases, uh, I could hear those and I'd be fine. It's like, yeah, that's okay. Um, folks with scrupulosity, those are torture. They're torture. And they're torture. <laughs> and those things, I, I've worked with so many folks where it's like, either it's perfect obedience or maybe I have to leave the church. Wow. Like there's no in between. If, if I am not flawless and perfect, there's no way that I can be welcome back. You know, exaltation is off the table because I, I can't ever get this perfect because I still have sexual thoughts and urges. And sometimes I still view sexual images and that is not perfect. And that distress is so high. It's like, you know, maybe I, I exit the church. That's the only way I can cope with that distress. And so you're right. Those phrases for a lot of people, it's like, okay, it doesn't really impact us a whole lot. But if you're on that scrupulosity and it's like, I, know how to cope with that level of distress that comes from that pressure and so the the problems tend to get worse or they choose the other path is like i guess i'm going to step away and i and i don't want that to be the case but often it is those messages and those phrases that contribute to that dissonance and that distress and then as um some of the stories in this chapter are missionaries and you would know this it's not only their exaltation they think that they're ruining others exaltation because they're not perfectly obedient as a missionary and they have sexual urges or sexual thoughts or whatever as a missionary. So they then conclude that they are keeping people, other people from exaltation because of their weaknesses. And that's just a horrible place that can bring so much really darkness and very difficult mental health issues that are not needed. Yep. And you're right. Cause the framework is I must be a bad person but it's like, well, actually, you might be struggling with scrupulosity. Yeah. This is a mental health presentation. This isn't about your righteousness or worthiness. And I actually realized this last week. This seems kind of silly that I'm slow to the table. But the reason why I really care about folks that struggle with pornography is many of those struggle with scrupulosity. And they are some of the best, most righteous, obedient, striving people I've ever met. And they don't see it. And I spend most of my time kind of holding up a mirror, like, this is actually who you are. You're only struggling with this because it really matters to you and you really care about it. And you're working so hard to get this right that it's causing problems. Um, but it's because you're trying to do the right thing to the nth degree 
that you're struggling. And so I, I, that's the human that I connect with. The pornography, it's like, yeah, I prefer if folks are not viewing porn, but it's the person that really I connect with and want to care for because so many of these folks that struggle are the best people I've ever met. That's a, I felt the same way too. And um, some of them I just called my heroes and warriors for, and it's, and yeah, so I feel the same way. Let's go to part two. We've, Listeners, I'm not very good on managing time. My guest is doing good time, but I'm talking more than I usually do. Um, part two is um, how acceptance and commitment therapy helps reduce pornography viewing. So go for that one. Yeah, and I can keep this one more brief. So the good news is we're not waiting for a treatment that works. Um, we have one. And so the, there's been a, uh, a recent review of the literature of the last 25 years and around pornography and, and problematic sexual behaviors. And there's been over 400 studies. Most of those we're looking at, is pornography an addiction or not? Most of those were trying to answer that question. There were less than 10 studies about what treatments are helpful for sexual addiction in general. When you look at what treatments are helpful for pornography, there were less than five treatment studies in the last 25 years. And so we really haven't been studying what treatments are effective. So they have been doing addiction treatments for decades, and there's a total of zero research studies showing that addiction approaches are effective, um, which is shocking. Um, so as a psychologist, I can only offer research-supported treatments, and addiction-based ones for pornography have zero research. Um, so I'm not able to ethically offer those. Um, but when we look at the treatments that do exist for pornography, Acceptance and commitment therapy have most of them, and there's only three. I wish I could say there's 300, but there's not. Um, there's only three. So ACT has been around since the 80s, so about 40 years. Um, ACT was not developed to reduce porn. That was not its origin. It is a behavioral treatment that is actually effective in treating most mental health concerns because it's addressing the underlying factors. So we found that avoidance of emotions and discomfort basically underlies all mental health concerns from anxiety, depression, trauma, OCD, you name it. Avoidance is at the core. ACT is targeting that specifically. So ACT is considered a transdiagnostic treatment. It works across all those mental health conditions. So they've been using ACT at BYU's Counseling Center for the last 20 years to treat pornography. So when I did my internship there, I was really surprised. It's like, oh, I, I thought you'd be using addiction recovery programs. And they don't because they're psychologists like me. And said, no, we got to find treatments that have some evidence and support. ACT does. So they've been doing it for 20 years. And so that's where I first learned ACT was at BYU's Counseling Center. And they're still using that now. And then the folks at Utah State, uh, Mike Tuig, he's not LDS, but he trained under Steve Hayes, who developed ACT. And he is a prolific researcher on OCD. And a lot of folks in Logan struggle with porn. And he's like, this kind of looks like OCD. Let's study and see if ACT is helpful in reducing porn. And it was. And so he produced the first randomized clinical trial uh, just six years ago on ACT for reducing porn. And they found that folks that have been struggling for years with this were able to reduce their viewing by over 90% in 12 weeks wow. with ACT. Um, which is exciting. We're not waiting for like, how do we help people? Like we have the treatment. It is here. Um, the challenge is, is kind of getting the word out. 
Um, but BYU has been doing it for 20 years. Um, just a few months ago, I was able to train a lot of the counselors at LDS Family Services in Utah and Idaho and Montana and Arizona. And I was really pleased to learn that a lot of them have been using ACT as well. Um, they were familiar with it. A lot of others hadn't heard of ACT, um, but I was able to spend a whole day with them training them that ACT is a really effective treatment for reducing pornography. And they were very receptive. And the director of family services, if people have not heard of her, she is wonderful. She is delightful. She is the, the right person to lead family services. Um, and she gets ACT. Um, so I'm excited to see ACT spread even more within family services. Um, that's a little bit newer there, but it's been at BYU for 20 years. Um, a really, really long time. Yeah, keep talking about ACT, and I'm thinking scaling this would make sense to priesthood leaders, to parents, to anybody trying to pe people themselves that would have this without being taught to them would just be learned. But well, it is taught to them by somebody, but it just seems like scaling this expertise and for everybody would be very helpful. So keep sharing exactly what ACT is. Yeah, so ACT, I think about these three main pillars. The first of which is openness. We're trying to cultivate more openness to have thoughts and emotions and urges and being curious about how our mind works and observing what's happening. And that's often a lot different than how we live our life. We're like, these things are uncomfortable. I don't like to feel these things. Push them away. Act is saying we actually need to get closer to those things. And so emotions really are just trying to communicate to us. All emotions are little labels we put on nervous system activity. Our nervous system's always scanning the environment, looking for cues of safety or danger. And it's communicating back to our brain like, oh, this is safe, this is pleasant, or this is scary, this is dangerous. Emotions are just communication. But we kind of get scared of the communication. It's like, ah, that's too loud, or I don't know what's happening. Um, but if we can actually be more open to those and curious... We are not pushed around by our thoughts or emotions anymore. We can stand still and kind of be in the cockpit. I often view being a cockpit. And we have all these sensors scanning the weather and our trajectory and our passengers and what's going on. And there's warning lights going off all the time. We don't have to respond to all of those at once. And we can sit there. We can observe those. We can listen to our experience and, and choose which cues or emotions or warning signs we need to respond to. Other ones we can just observe and be curious about. And so if you have that openness, you can have an urge and notice it. So often I think about these smartphones and technology, and, and I have urges frequently to check my phone and to check my messages. And when I'm not aware of that, I tend to check my phone quite a bit. And the more stressed I am, the more I check my phone and check my emails and check my voicemails. But if you can slow down, and be aware that I might be feeling overwhelmed or stressed. Oh, here's an urge to check my phone. But if you can notice it, you can now disobey the urge. It's like, I don't need to check my phone in this moment. That urge is there. I can choose to check it later. I could check it now, or I can just observe that urge. Yeah, I wonder where that's coming from. Isn't that interesting? And so these are some of the pillars is being open to our experience. And that second one is being aware to actually be present in the moment. But our mind likes to be busy. So it's like, no, let's think about the past and all the things we've done wrong and how we can fix that. And that's often where depression lives is 
ruminating about the past or minds like let's try to anticipate every possible scenario in the future. And that's where anxiety lives. And your mind wants to take you from the present because it's a problem solver. Let's fix the past. Let's fix the future. But coming back to this present allows us to listen to those emotions, connect in our relationships and really enjoy this life. And I think about the spirit is it communicates to us in the present. And we don't spend a lot of time in the present. We spend a lot of time responding to urges and checking out and being busy, not being here. And one of my favorite godly traits is being omnipresent. Being present is a divine trait. Being here in this moment as it is without needing it to be different or needing it to go away or changing it in any way. It's a great, that's very thoughtful and thinking of our culture that sometimes doesn't allow us to have emotions um, or rewards not being emotional. <laughs> I guess that's yep. the same thought. Um, keep sharing about this. Keep sharing on act. Yeah. And I would say with that emotions, um, the thing that's a little heartbreaking for me when I'm sitting in fast and testimony meeting and somebody's feeling this spirit and they're feeling emotion Often the next thing they say is, I'm sorry. And they apologize. Interesting. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Like you are present and you're feeling and the spirit is communicating and you're connecting with us. We have a culture that, oh, we must have done it wrong. Um, That we have to deliver our beliefs devoid of emotion. And the spirit often works through emotion and we're just not that comfortable with it. And so as a result, we do struggle more with mental health concerns and overeating and gaming and pornography. And a lot of that comes from, it's like, we don't want to be emotional. We want to look all put together all the time and and be able to talk to people and and not be tearful, but that's not human and it's not healthy. And so, yeah, I would love for a cultural shift of when we're emotional, approach it. Don't apologize for it. I love that. Um, Keep sharing. um, just, I don't know if you want to go to engaged after aware. That's the third part of this, or yeah, that's that last pillar. So if we're more emo- open and aware, the biggest shift in act, this is that perspective shift, is instead of spending all of your time and energy in trying to fix problems or eliminate things, we're going to start focusing on what actually matters in our life. So our mind often convinces us that you have to overcome pornography before you can date or before you can get married or before you can serve in the church or go on a mission. And so your life is on hold as you fix this problem for years and decades. The opposite is more true. That as you pursue things that really matter to you, as you cultivate your relationship with God and build your connections and get an education and and serve in your community in the church and truly live your values, the need to soothe ourselves from a, a life devoid of meaning goes down and struggles with pornography go down as you actively live your life with purpose and intention. But our mind's going to say, we're not allowed to do that until we fix porn. Then you can live your life. But act is saying the opposite's true. The more we live our life now, the less we're going to struggle with some of these coping strategies like porn. I love that. Do you want to talk? And I talk about in the book a little bit about, because I'm thinking of YSAs that are sort of thinking porn will end as they get married and they're not going to talk about it in the dating process, either a past or a current porn problem. 
um, talk to YSAs that have a current porn problem that are either putting their life on hold and saying, I'll solve this maybe until I, you know, I'm going to solve this before I date or YSAs that have a porn um, problem, but aren't talk and are getting married thinking marriage will just end it. Yeah. I've never seen that occur. I've never seen that work because often folks turn to porn to get a sense of connection. And often we're we're not that aware of that because it's like, Oh, porn is bad. This is wrong. I don't know why I'm doing this. And often people sexuality, I guess the essence of it is it's connecting. It's connecting with our body. It's connecting us to the moment, connecting with emotion, and then ideally connecting us with our eternal companion. And so there's such a connection need. And porn is kind of like trying to meet that need with candy, where it's like, it's not nutritional and it's never going to satisfy that need, but it does a little bit. It's like a candy bar for connection. And so we can fulfill that connection need through relationships, through friendships, through dating, through marriage. But if we're holding on to this hope that when I'm able to have sex in a marriage, I will no longer need to turn to porn. I've never seen that occur that way. Because this is not a sexual problem. This is a connection issue. This is an emotional concern. It's low mindfulness and it's lack of acceptance of thoughts, emotions, and urges. So if we've done nothing to address those underlying concerns, getting married doesn't make this go away. It does not. So the good news is we do know what is helpful. I mean, it's all the things we've talked about that we actually do have to increase awareness of emotions. We do have to have vulnerable conversations. We do need to have connections in our life. And the more we have those, the more we pursue our relationships, the less of a need to view pornography there is. And that's a gradual shift. So it might be you're pursuing those things and living those values and occasionally still viewing sexual images. That's part of that transformation. Um, But if you're on that scrupulosity side, it's like, oh, no, it happened once. I got to stop everything, put it on hold till I fix this. That's a trap. Um, So focus on eternal progression. It's a path. We're working. We're striving in that direction. And surround yourself by good, safe people. And the more connection and support you have, the less of that need to soothe with porn that will, that will be there. I like that. And I wrote about just sort of for YSAs, you know, should they talk to their, um, as they're beginning real serious in relationship, should they talk about current or past porn use or current or past um, sexual activity with other people, like especially past, if you're in a current relationship, hopefully you're being faithful to your, um, whoever you're dating. Um, so there's just some thoughts in the book, but it's not very binary. Like you're, there's a lot of nuance there. I think sometimes I hear a church leader say, if you're dating someone that's viewing porn, you ought to end the relationship. And I don't think it's quite that simple. I think sometimes just being vulnerable and honest, I think the partner not viewing porn needs to have permission to end the relationship if he or she feels that way. But I don't think necessarily that if a partner's viewing porn in the dating process or even married that that means the relationship's over. I think what you're helping us understand that there's stuff at the bottom of the iceberg needs to be addressed, that if you're married can be solved together, or if you're in a committed relationship working towards marriage, I don't think the other partner needs to feel responsible for solving their porn use or even be the accountability partner. It can be somebody that's a trusted partner to help understand what's going here and understand sort of the bottom of the iceberg stuff you're talking about. So there's just kind of room in there for a lot of different feelings. But I think what we both invite you to do is talk about it. Yes. <laughs> and let you walk that road together. 
um, especially if you're in a committed relationship. Um, I don't know if you want to talk more about this engaged phase of the ACT program or if you want to talk to go straight to resources. Yeah, maybe just that last thing on what you mentioned with that dating is focus more on the person you're in a relationship with than the presence or absence of pornography. And so there, there might be wonderful people you're dating that have struggled with porn or haven't struggled with porn. Focus on getting to know them and their characteristics. That is more meaningful. Um, I've seen people that I would not recommend people date or build relationships with that may struggle with porn or may never have struggled with porn. That's not the variable that's determining if this is a good companion or not. The pornography is less relevant. It's how were they able to talk about this? How open are they? You know, what's their learning process? Where is their heart? Where is their intentions? But presence or absence of pornography is not the criteria to determine whether or not this is a safe person to be in a relationship with. Totally agree with that. That's terrific. And some, um, you know, some, I don't want to say this should be for all, look at their partner working through pornography and recognize that they're getting, they're going to solve this and look at all that they're learning in the process from a clinical emotional perspective, from the atonement perspective. And they look at their partner as, as better off for it and will actually improve the relationship, the marriage and be a better parent to kids because of their journey. Um, And so I, I I don't want to make that the narrative for everybody, but some come to that conclusion that, yeah, there's sin in this whole process, but mortality is full of sin. And this is actually refined, you know, my current or future um, long-term partner, husband, wife uh, in a way that is helpful for our relationship and helpful for the kids, even though there's sin involved. Now we both know where pornography use has destroyed marriages because of lack of trust and, and perhaps infidelity that comes into a marriage. So if you're have been in a marriage like that, I don't think either Dr. Staley or I saying, you know, you should have stayed in that marriage or, you know, you've got to, there's personal stories within all of this space. I don't feel like you need to stay in a marriage. No. If it's unsavable or that you're responsible to save it. Um, so there's a whole nother podcast in that. Um, but just some general thoughts for each of us. Uh, more thoughts on the ACT program before you go to resources. Yeah, I think what I appreciate about ACT is this is an, a philosophy for living life that can help you not only overcome a struggle with pornography, but improve your sexual health and improve the depth of your religious values and improve your relationships and improve overall mental health. And so it's often we think about, I'll be good when I don't have this problem anymore, but the absence of a problem doesn't, it doesn't equal health. So the absence of a porn problem doesn't mean you're sexually healthy. Just like if I don't eat candy, I'm an elite athlete. It's like, no, those are different things. And so act is more about, letting go of the, I got to fix this problem mentality and more on, I want to build a life that's truly worth living. That's going to leave an impact and a legacy and one that I care about and one that has purpose. And so it is much bigger than it'll help me overcome my porn issue. Um, Yes, it will. um, But it's more about living a life with integrity and with purpose. And that's what I really appreciate with ACT is it's not saying you're going to struggle with this problem for the rest of your life and for years and years. That's not a hopeful outlet. With ACT, it's like, yeah, with the right approach, 
and skills and outlook, you can overcome this struggle um, soon um, and get into your life now. Um, and that helps us move forward so much better. I love that. And I love hope. One of my, one of the people that wrote in this chapter um, talked about his ongoing porn use. And um, I think the savior would say to him, if he messed up, you're well, you're one day closer to solving this. And that was the hope perspective. And Satan, who I think is real, would say, you're back to square one. And everything you've learned is for naught. And all the repentance and all the good work you've done is for naught. And you're back to square one. And then all the language that would come into your mind if you messed up again. And so I think, you know, those of you that are working for porn use, I think you have to look at this as a spiral staircase is what this author talked about. You're making progress, even if along your progress, you have mess ups. I think. Um, one user, one YSA taught me the difference between lapsed and relapsed. He said, Bishop, lapse is when I mess up and I look at it as a learning experience. And I think what happened, what, what, what's the totality story? What's the bottom of the iceberg stuff? Talked with therapist and, and look at it as a learning experience in a positive, hopeful way, even though there's sin involved. Why relapse would say, oh, I don't care anymore. I've messed up again, so I'll just binge. Yep. And I'm not going to use this learning experience. And so there's a real difference there. And just the mindset as you're working through that. And you brought up our LGBTQ friends. And I want to circle back to that is um, I remember when some people would tell me, you know, I had a couple of gay men in the ward and they would say, Bishop, I'm attracted to so-and-so. And I was uncomfortable for me to hear a man saying he's attracted to a man. Yeah. And I'm not sure I handled those conversations way back then. But when someone tells me that now, someone active in the church, I've learned to normalize that because that's other wired. And just like men that are straight are attracted to women at times. And I think normalizing for lesbian, gay, people that take on the SSA label bisexual, normal, normalizing those attractions would help somebody just feel better about themselves and take the shame and the self-loathing and the church is separated orientation from behavior, as we know. So sort of giving permission. So when we did that, I think we should give permission for people to own their orientation. And if you're gay, um, you're going to have crushes on guys. If, yep. you're, if you're a man and if you're a woman, you're going to have crushes on women. And, and sort of not creating shame around that, I think, would help someone just, I believe, do better in the church and better relationship with their with Heavenly Father because they just feel less shame about who they are and then don't perhaps engage in other behaviors that you're talking about sort of coping behaviors whatever they are to deal with this part of them that they just really don't like so that's kind of i I assume you're okay with that oh yeah i would just add that act is an effective treatment in reducing internalized homophobia wow that self-hatred for your sexual identity. Um, we've got published research on that um, because ACT is helping people accept things internal that just are. That, that aren't just are. <laughs> and the more we can accept our sexuality, the more that we can then choose our actions and our behaviors. But the more we struggle with our sexuality, the less choice we have. And so ACT is an evidence-based treatment for reducing shame around your sexual orientation. Wow. I'm really glad you put that into this segment. That'll help a lot of people. And I realize culturally within our church, we create great shame around sexual orientation. And I think we can learn to improve. That doesn't require us to change our doctrine. It just requires us to talk about 
people that aren't straight in the kind of language that you're talking about them. And, and I believe the kind of language our Heavenly Father would use to describe his children that aren't straight. Yep. Um, and this part about them is just how they're created, like being left-handed or blue eyes. And yep. I don't think we come with internalized homophobia. I think that is a learned behavior from yep. um, the cultures around us that creates that in people and creates it in straight people to look at people that way and create that kind of language. So that's a, that's a really, that's a bonus segment for anybody that needed that one. So talk about resources. If you're ready to go on with the resources. Yeah, let's do it. So yeah, this has been a passion for mine for a long time that I, I want to improve sexual education, sexuality, more acceptance around the divine characteristics that we have as sexual beings. And so I have created uh, the Life After series. So I, I do host a podcast. It's on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, where I share ACT concepts. And I talk about these principles in applying them to pornography struggles or sexual orientation or religious concerns. So those are all free resources out there. I just feel really strongly that if people had these principles, they would do better in their life. And then the last few months, I just launched the Life After Pornography Coach app with the folks from Get Your Marriage On. Um, they develop other relationship apps um, like Intimately Us, which is a wonderful app for uh, couples and marriages. A lot of the podcasts that they do on that app are all from LDS folks, um, the developers LDS. Um, so I've been collaborating with him. So that app is a really accessible way to learn ACT. And it's got a built-in community where you can interact with other folks on the app. Who are also learning ACT principles and practicing mindfulness. And you can chat about these together. There's a lot of interactive tools to, to increase awareness of emotions and mindfulness practices. There's a built-in journal um, part of it. And then as part of that app, I do monthly office hours. So I go there each month to answer people's questions. Um, so that's a really accessible option to learn ACT. Um, there's a free seven-day trial if you want to check it out. And I think it's like 10 bucks a month. Um, so really affordable to learn, act for porn struggles. And then I've also got the Life After Pornography self-directed online program. I've had that for the last couple of years now. And I've had hundreds of folks go through that program. And that one's more in depth to learn, act, a lot more experiential. There's a lot more ex expert interviews, a more in-depth workbook. And I've made that one... Uh, less than the cost of a single therapy session. So it's under hundred bucks for that whole program, um, which is basically what I would do with somebody if I was working with them for 12 weeks. Um, it's all just videos of me walking through act concepts. Um, and then you can apply this from the comfort of your own home or listen to it on your smartphone. Um, I've got all the mindfulness recordings there and all the modules. Um, act really works. I just want it to get it into people's hands um, in the most accessible way possible. And then because of those programs, I just had a lot of people reach out to me and say, hey, can you help me? Do you offer counseling or coaching? Um, so just in the last couple of months, I am offering Good. counseling services to folks in Utah and Idaho. Um, so I can only do counseling in states where I'm licensed. Um, so I do general mental health counseling and then a lot around religion and sexuality um, in Utah and Idaho. And then I do coaching services in the other states for those that are either going through the app or going through the Life After program to help them apply those principles. So it's been wonderful to feel like 
I can do a little bit more than what I'm doing at my university and, and to fulfill this calling that feels like a higher calling to improve the conversations and improve education and to provide actual principles that are going to help people make these changes that they want so they can move forward in their life. That's terrific. Talk, we'll link to all this in the show notes, listeners, so you can check all this out because you just went through a lot. But if there's one website or one place you want people that aren't going to go to the show notes, just to remember, um, mm. audio-wise, <laughs> that's a word, just t- tell them where they should go. Yeah, I, I, there's a couple of places. I probably need to get better on the tech side, but <laughs> on Facebook, you can go to Life After Series or... Uh, Dr. Cameron Staley, that's a really easy place to find me. And we've got the Life After Series Instagram. And then my personal website, it's CameronStaleyPhD.wordpress.com. That's a long one. I probably need to improve that. Um, But I'll share that link with you. But um, you can track me down um, through any of those uh, avenues. So listeners, we'll put all those in the show notes. So don't feel much pressure to write this down as you're driving to work or home from work or to the gym. Um, you know, I just want listeners to know, I re- thinking of the three years, I don't want to keep making this about my YSA assignment, but we, we would have groups. We, we knew we didn't have the tools, um, to help YSAs. We had spiritual tools, you know, scripture reading and prayer and church. And we recognized we were missing tools in our toolbox to help the YSAs. And so often we'd have groups come present to us. As YSA bishops, well, we're in a stake of YSA bishops, and some of those were more helpful than others, but we just didn't know how to navigate this. And so, listeners, this is as fine as content as I've ever heard. And I've heard Dr. Staley talk before, but my personal journey, um, just working with so many and listening to so many people with your expertise, I've sort of landed on this as being the very best program. Now, there's I don't want to say this is the end all or ha- there's not good elements and other sort of approaches, um, but this is just a terrific approach. And so I just encourage us and the principles, the thing that you teach about the ACT program is it's scalable to all these other things. It's a, it's something that just helps us do better. Yeah. Um, and I love it sort of gets to the bottom of the iceberg, which is so important and Often I would just end at the top of the iceberg and say, well, just stop looking at porn. (laughs) And why can't you just white knuckle it until the urges go away? And I recognize for some, maybe being really sharp and direct was all they needed. But for most that just (laughs) either caused them to stop talking to me or caused their (laughs) porn view to increase is the shame. So I, I have great hope that it's actually peaked listeners with um, this period of time, I was wired, I'm 61. I was wired the same way my YSAs were. I just had no access. So maybe I had other coping mechanisms like running for seven years without missing a day, which, you know, there's no sin related in that. But I've always, I say that to give mercy to the YSAs. I just recognize that you're the first age group that's dealt with 24-7 access in the privacy of your home. And I didn't have that. And I, I don't think, and I just wonder where I would be in this space if I were a YSA today. But the thing that gives me hope is not that there's, you know, I recognize there's more porn viewing going on with that age group than my age group. But the thing that gives me hope is you're the first generation dealing with 24-7, and then you're the first generation that's going to connect 
with the content that Dr. Staley's talking about. And so you are going to be the mothers and the fathers and the young women's leaders and the bishops and the therapists of tomorrow that are going to be raising kids. And this is where I believe that we're, we're making so much progress is you will, you have walked this road to some extent and, and it will give you practical tools to help others. So if you're feeling shame for messing up, or this has been part of your life, look at this in a positive way that you can get beyond this, but the learning um, the perspective and the tools, not only about the atonement, its ability to heal, but the practical tools that Dr. Staley, which I would say based on gospel principles, give you, you know, wonderful tools to help your kids and people within your circle of influence that I never had. <laughs> and I wish I had. And so one of you is going to be a YSA bishop. We still have that vocabulary 20 years from now. And the first guy that walks into your office, you're not going to be like me. Um, with the deer in the headlights saying, I don't really know what to tell you except read and pray and study your scriptures more to solve your porn use. Um, and he was doing that maybe more than he, you know, maybe in an over religiosity way that actually was not helping him. So, um, I'm so glad for the work you're doing and I just, I love the way you want to scale it through the app and through the resources that you're using that can be scaled outside of Utah and Idaho. Um, and I just encourage people to connect with your good work. Any other final comments, Dr. Staley? And I'm, every, listeners, don't put a Y in his last name. I don't know if I, when I think of Staley, I want to, it's not the way you might think. It's S-T-A-L-E-Y. That's just six letters with no Y. So I misspelled your name on my paper a little bit. Um, go ahead, Dr. Staley, for any last comments. Yeah, I just want to second what you shared there is, it's really unfortunate that often the first time people have conversations about sexual health is when they've had a problem and struggle with pornography. It's like, that shouldn't be the first time we have conversations or start to learn about our sexuality. But for many people, their only access to education came because they had a problem. Interesting. And, and I, I do see that. that as there's a whole generation of folks that had to educate themselves and had to figure this out, and had to open up, and had to have conversations. And I do feel pretty strongly that this group is going to be a lot more prepared to talk with their children, to normalize sexuality, and to have these open conversations. Because in the past, it's been, if you want to look at pornography, that is a sin. You know, what is wrong with you? Yeah. But I think about it, pornography is designed to be appealing. And if you view sexual images you will become aroused. Yeah. That is working appropriately. But we never were taught that you will become aroused by viewing sexual images. That is what they are designed to do. We haven't heard that. It's like, if you become aroused, what is wrong with you? That is really simple. Um, but pornography arouses sexuality. And so there's a, a lot of people that are, oh, I see this now. And I see how shame did not help me and how fear did not help me. And trying to do this on my own didn't help me. I have seen how accessing the atonement did help me and learning helped me and connecting with people helped me. And this has been a really humbling experience. And now I have a lot more compassion and empathy for other people. And there's been so many times I've led groups for folks who struggle with porn. And most of them are um, straight individuals. 
And then I'll have folks in this group who are gay or bisexual or lesbian. And these folks that start with porn have so much more compassion and empathy for folks with other sexual orientations, even though they haven't experienced that or don't have a lot of knowledge or education around it, but they know what it's like to suffer and to struggle and not feel like they have a place and striving to make this work and it hasn't happened. So I've seen that this pornography struggle in some ways has been a teacher and it's helped people develop that empathy. And for me, that is the essence of the atonement. It is the ultimate act of empathy. The savior is willing to fill and be there with us through all of this. And that's something that we can do to a much lesser degree is to really listen to people, learn about them and love them, which is all the work that you're doing, which I love. Um, it's, it's made such a huge impact. And that connection, that empathy is what really helps us navigate this challenging journal of mortality. This is new for all of us. We've never had bodies before. Emotions are uncomfortable and sexuality might be pretty new for us. And we can help each other so much better with that empathy. And sometimes we need a thorn in our side or a struggle with porn to help us cultivate that. And if we didn't have a struggle, sometimes we're not that understanding and don't have a lot of compassion. And so these struggles have been really annoying and really irritating for a long time. But in the end, they can actually help us serve others and love others and fulfill those great commandments of loving God, our neighbor, and ourselves. And that often comes from struggling. And this is just another struggle. I love that. I think of um, Zion, and you've just described what Zion is to me. Yeah. It isn't perfect obedience or exact obedience. It's just the reality of mortality learning, but doing that together. Yep. And um, I sometimes think culturally, you work out your salvation, I'll work out mine. And we're in these individual silos, but the older I get, the more we need each other. Yep. And these thorns in the side, I like that language, allow us to grow and then be able to reach out and help others in a way that may not be possible without these thorns in our side. And I think that's a good thing. And um, I think that's one of the greatest gifts you can give to others for those of you that have gone through thorns in your side experiences is able to take all the learning and then lift the hands of others because you know that desert, so to speak. You're the wounded healer. We talk about the wounded healer a lot on this podcast, the idea that to be an authentic leader, you kind of know what it need to know what it's like in the desert to authentically lead somebody out of the desert. That's a paraphrasing of the quote, but... So those of you that just feel this part about you or this, this you know, that we're talking about today, whatever it is, um, I love the way that, you know, you're talking about this thorn on the side. Thorn on the side, thorn in, I kind of like that because it's just this, it, I think it puts it in a perspective that thorns come out and heal, um, but we then understand in a way we didn't before so we can help others. So I love that visual imagery. Um, so we'll sign off. Um, but Dr. Cameron Staley, thank you. Maybe we'll have you on the podcast again because you really get my juices flowing. And um, just there's so much need for good content in this space and you're delivering it and it's needed. So I'm Richard Osler and Dr. Cameron Staley signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love.